So thank you all for coming today. I, uh, my name is Zania Dormandy. I run the U.S. program at Chatham House. And we're incredibly lucky today to have a group of very distinguished speakers talking about the U.S. election and what happens next. There's only a week to the U.S. election. For those of you who, who don't watch, read the news every day, this is on Tuesday of next week. Um, in this panel, we're going to cover a range of issues including the race itself, Obama's first term, um, what that looked like, and also what the future might look like. Let me quickly introduce the panel. Um, on my immediate left is Professor Craig Calhoun, who most of you know as the new director of the school, having previously been the university professor at New York University and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge and president of the Social Science Research Council. Aren't you tired by just listing all that? No, no, it's, it's all good. I did it in one breath, no less. Um, on my immediate right is Professor Mick Cox, who's the founding co-director of LSE Ideas. On my far left is Dr. Pippa Malgram, president and founder of Principalis Asset Management, and also a former financial market advisor at the White House and former member of the National Economic Council. And last, but by no means least, is on my far right, Sir Robert Worcester, who is the founder of Mori Polls and is an honorary fellow of LSE. We are very, very delighted to have them all here. I'm going to speak very, very briefly. Suffice to say, just a little bit about the format. We've asked each of them to speak for five to seven minutes, and I have warned them all I will pull them if they go over. And we're then going to open up. I might ask a couple of questions, but we're going to open up to you, the audience. So try and catch my eye. I will try and uh, keep as many of you going as I can. Um, for those of you who are Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashmark LSE US votes. And the only other thing I want to say to you is please can you turn off your cell phones or at least put them on silent if you haven't already done so. We hope that this will be uh, available later as a podcast for those of you who want to see it all again and I'm sure that counts for all of you. With that, um, I'm going to step aside and pass the floor to Sir Robert. Thank you very much. Well, that's what we're here for. Hands up, those of you who are Americans. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> Get out. And some more questions for you. How many Republicans started this race? Uh, more than 10? Hands up? M more than 20? 52. 52 people signed up, paid their money in one state or another, some in three, some in five, uh, and some in 50. And how many led in the polls at one point or another? One, two, three, any more than five? Six? Nodding. Seven? Hands up. Anybody more than seven? Eleven people. Eleven people led in the race. Who do you want to win? Romney, hands up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're not American, you can't vote. Well, at the Labor Party conference, uh, there was one hand up. It was the spokesman for Republicans abroad. Uh, and who do you think will win? Romney? One. 
All right. Obama? Well, that's it. Then the election's over. <laughs> and one more from, to Cameron from Letterman on the Letterman Show. Where was the Magna Carta signed? <laughs> Where? Wrong. Correct answer? Nowhere. It wasn't signed. It was sealed. <laughs> there you go. I wrote to David and said, if I'd only had a, been able to have a word in your ear and told you that the right answer was nowhere, you'd have turned the tables on Letterman and then he'd have looked a fool instead of going the other way around. <laughs> so you remember the debates. Think back. Who did the Republicans want to beat Obama? Who's that? Huntsman? Newt Gingrich? Herman Cain. Come on, come on. Herman Cain. Oh, that's good. Well done. She's going to say. Yeah. Tina Fey. She led in the polls at the beginning. Led the polls, yeah. Santorum? Good. And finally? Good, good. You're, I think you're about the best audience I've had. <laughs> I think this is the ninth or tenth time that I've done this. Now, there were six reasons why I said Obama will win on the 11th of January at an open lecture in 2012 at Warwick University. The election of a Republican Congress in 2010. To me, the most surprising thing in this election is that Obama has not run against the Republican Congress. I suspect because he didn't want to further alienate the Republican Congress in his second term. The improving economy, and indeed it is. The index on Gallup went up a couple of days ago. Uh, the unemployment went below 8% three weeks ago. And the uh, purchasing manager's index is up. All of the indicators seem to be up that the economy is doing better there, if not here. And the Republicans are a divided party. After all, they spent three months beating up, four months, beating up on each other in an ABR and, and anybody but Romney series of primaries, which is why 11 people, 11 candidates on the Republican ticket, uh, 10 against him, were trying to find another candidate, any alternative candidate. There'll be right-wing Republicans who will stay home. Barack Obama's a formidable campaigner, and Michelle is as well. If you want to know why I think Republicans right-wing will stay home, please ask the question, because I don't have time to cover it now. But I did say at that time that I thought a President Obama would win with just over 300 electoral college votes. And how many does it take to win? 270. Spot on. So here's what happened at the conventions. They came and they went, and they, came, they started at 46.42 plus 4. And our daily tracker, Ipsos USA, my, my partners over there, uh, measured very neatly the bounce, the Romney bounce, and then the Democratic National Convention came in, and Obama recovered, and he ended up plus four. So there was virtually, effectively, I should say, no change. Swing, zero. That's what the track has been looking like since the end of August. And it has been pretty close. Obama led for a while, but then it got extremely close, and it has been extremely close. And in the last week or so, there have been daily tracks that have had Romney at 1.2 points ahead. But at the moment, it's spreading again a little bit. 
And if you look at the tracks against the first debate, you can see how there was indeed a Romney bounce. And you can see how it flattened out with the vice presidents, but particularly there, and Obama came back and he led right up until the last debate, but nobody won, nobody lost. It was pretty well a dead heat, although the public, uh, in my view anyway, but the public said that he, he did win that by a sizable majority. So it's maybe 52-47, 52-48, depending on whether there's a six-tenths of a point for other candidates uh, across the country and whether they count as a 1% on rounding or not. That's setting aside the don't knows. So looking at some of the key segments of voters, you've got women, 56% probably of the likely voters, and a 15-point lead for the Democratic Party. With blacks, you've got 12% of the potential voters, I should say, registered voters, and 84%, and it's 84 to zero. It's almost like this audience. And Hispanic Americans, 8%, and rising, a 29%, with 45% to 16% on that measure. So here was the first debate, and that was one that there was a big lead for Romney, and Barack Obama was sleepwalking. However, coming to the second debate, there was a 15-point lead, a huge swing of 18.5. Now, swing for the Americans in the room who don't, aren't that familiar with swing, it's uh, how many people in 100 that have moved from one side to the other. And the third debate, he held his own. There was hardly any swing at all. So there was nobody who actually made a big difference from after the second debate. Health care, seven points lead today. I think health care is probably as big an issue of division than the economy. But let's look at both of them side by side. 41 percent, 34 percent, 13 and 12, 25 percent either don't know or neither have the best or none of the above, plus seven, and no change recently. And men with plus six on that and women with plus 10. Now on many of the things we're measuring, uh, there is quite a substantial difference from 12 to 15 points difference, and this is a minimal difference on health care itself. U.S. economy, it's bigger. You've got a one-point lead there, but the change has been very dramatic, particularly on health care across the bottom there. He had, his top was a plus 16, plus 13, plus 7, and it's now 7 with no change. The latest poll day before yesterday, and the put three, a minus three, that is a Romney lead of three post-third debate, and minus five. So that's moving in Romney's direction, even with the good figures that are coming through. And there you had a big difference, 20 points between men and women. Which candidates better or stronger on all these things? I'll not spend a lot of time, but what I would show you particularly is this policy gap and how many are blue and how few are red. And having said that very quickly, the things in the bottom, jobs and employment and U.S. economy, are probably the two most important along with health care, which does go Obama's way. But those two are very important. But those four at the bottom, as you can see, are in a long way from being the um, 12, uh, yeah, uh, nine, I think, nine, 13 up there. 
And then on the image attributes, again, the image attribute gap is very, very pronounced with fun to meet, to be likable, eloquent, and understanding people on Obama with double-digit figures. And write down the only thing there's a substantial lead on for Mitt Romney is uh, on being a man of faith. So favorability is a very interesting one because it's shifting. 20-point lead for Obama, Mitt Romney, 48 to 52, a minus 4, so a 24-point gap. However, the latest shows, and this was the day before yesterday's survey, a 14-point, so he's down 6 for Obama from the week before, and a plus 10. So he has recovered, Romney has recovered after the debates very substantially on being, getting a favorable rating. So to wind up, here's what Nat Silver is projecting. There are two of the uh, websites that I follow most closely many times a day. Nate Silver's on 538, go to 538 rather than his, uh, his own site to get these numbers, and uh, the Real Clear Politics, which is the traditional anchor of the best coverage of this kind of stuff. The odds have moved 77 to 23 in Nat Silver, and the popular vote 52-47. So a five-point gap and more than Gallup, certainly more than Rasmussen and the rest. So the odds are 3 to 1 in Ohio, 60-40 in Virginia for Obama. Uh, Florida's gone. It's two-thirds, one-third the other way. Wisconsin, despite Ryan, is 80-20 in the betting odds. And this is moved by money. But who follows the polls most closely other than pollster, other pollsters? Punters. Uh, you got 72 to 28 for Iowa, 58-42, and New Hampshire 70-30, despite the fact that they're really going in big guns into New Hampshire. But now that's been set aside by Hurricane Sandy. And as of yesterday, the odds were 75-25, a 3-to-1 bet for uh, Obama. So six talking points for you, a bit of throwaway, attributions not required. Don't have to say who it is. Make pretend it's yours. Uh, yeah, Romney won the first debates, but so did Nick. There are a few who understand that at the Tory party. At the Tory party conference, there was a moment silent, a second silence, and then the roar of laughter in the Tory party conference. A third of independents won't vote anyway. Don't knows don't vote. 24% of Americans in 2007 said they'd never vote for a Mormon. It's dropped to 12%, but no data can I find on those who think they'd never vote for a black man since 1965. Yeah, That'll yeah. begin to tell you why I said there are some right-wing Republicans that are going to stay home. 42% of Americans in 1998 said they were born-again Christians. Many are the Tea Party types, and they're the core, natural core supporters of the Republican Party. Therefore, Will they? I believe they will. And 12, I think the turnout is going to be lower this time than last. 12%, I did that uh, a few days ago, it's now 18% who've said they've already voted. 
and only 72% said they'll vote in a day, and one in American in 25 say they'd rather have a tooth pulled than watch another debate. <laughs> With that, thank you. Okay, that's, I'm not sure that's the best news I've heard in weeks. Um, thanks very much, Bob. Um, I think most people on this panel are going to be talking about domestic politics and the economy, and it's always said that American elections are shaped by domestic politics in general and the economy in particular. Uh, especially true of this election, perhaps. I think it's Bob almost implied in one or two of his asides. Indeed, one of the unique features of this election is not just the strong focus on the economy, but the fact that the Republicans, I think for the first time in a very long time, are focusing much more on the economy than national security. Uh, why? Uh, firstly, because of the state of the US economy, which uh, the Republicans think is a winner for them. And secondly, because Obama seems less vulnerable on foreign policy than he does on the economy. In that sense, this presidential is unique. We've got the great role reversal. Because traditionally, the Republicans have focused on the national security, assuming at least that the economy is their weak point. This time it is not. So that has reinforced the notion that it's all about the economy, as Bill Clinton would say, it's the economy stupid. Most of the commentary about the election, at least, has strengthened this view. Thus, if Obama loses, which many of you are clearly not hoping for, uh, indeed it will be because of unemployment and the debt, the fiscal cliff and all the rest. And if Obama wins, it will be because, in essence, he has managed to convince enough voters that the economic situation would have been worse without him and particularly without St. Ben Bernanke. Um, and the economic situation is getting better, and indeed will get better if he has another four years. Indeed, one of the big messages of the Obama people, and you pick this up time and again, is not that life is easy uh, economically, uh, or that the economic crisis is over, but that if the Republicans were to win, this would, in the words of one, one commentator yesterday, spook the markets. And uh, this was said by Liam Halligan in that well-known left-wing newspaper, The Sunday Telegraph. Uh, the stock market would tumble, interest rates would rise, and unemployment would go back up to 11 or rise to 11 or 12%. Draw your own conclusions. If the markets are for you, uh, you're, you're, you're with God and paradise and all the rest. So that said, I just want to make the case uh, that although in the last analysis, to use those weasel words, uh, the economy is stupid, probably will determine unemployment, fears of jobs and all the rest, I still want to make the case that foreign affairs always figures in American elections. Whether they determine or shape the outcomes, they always have. Even in the so-called post-Cold War period, foreign policy directly and indirectly has made a difference. The 2004 election of GW was, after all, in part determined by the war on terror. And you could say that, in part, uh, the election of Obama himself was because of a reaction against the foreign policy of GW. 
What are therefore the key foreign policy questions and issues that have been discussed and debated in the course of this debate and do they matter? Key issue number one, and indeed coming from Europe, one almost thinks this becomes almost the only issue in the United States, it's called the Middle East. Um, now the Middle East is sometimes a synonym for Israel. Um, and in the, in the debates in the United States, you can quite clearly see how the Republicans are trying, trying to play this. It's not a synonym for Israel, but it's pretty close, with Romney doing his best to show that Obama has betrayed America's key ally in the shape of Israel, that Obama was behind the curve on the Arab Spring, uh, not supporting democratic movements from below, and that his vacillations, as, Obama, as, as Romney has called it over Iran, at the start of his term in office, you remember he held out the hand to Ahmadinejad, and Ahmadinejad did what he usually does very well, he bit off the hand. Uh, but this attempt to reconcile to diplomacy with Iran was bound to fail, and uh, has only encouraged greater intransigence by the Iranians, particularly on the nuclear weapons issue. Libya has also figured in two ways in this election, you may have noticed. This famous phrase, leading from behind, uh, which was actually never uttered by the president, and it was uttered by somebody who was no longer in the administration. I've been reassured, he's been sacked. Um, not, not the three greatest words ever uttered on anything, but leading from behind gave the impression that the United States was not leading when it should have been. And then, of course, the death of the American ambassador in Benghazi was ill. So the Middle East issue has come up clearly time and again and is clearly being exploited by, by Romney in order to demonstrate either that America is losing or has lost its key ally in the region or that it's not on the democratic agenda or indeed has led to some really great disasters in terms of American power. The second foreign policy issue, very quickly, of course, inevitably, is China. When you come to an American presidential, what do you do? Instinctively, bash China. Um, it's been going on for a very long time. In fact, when Obama, to give him to his credit, came into power in 2008, I think he was the first American president who didn't do much China bashing. In fact, he didn't do very much at all. I think he's been forced into more China bashing than he feels comfortable with during this election, but nobody can bash China as well as Romney. Um, Romney has gone a step further, and this in a sense is specific, and this is where just general China bashing now moves to the specifics. The specifics is on day one, when he becomes President, uh, President Romney, he will declare China a, a currency manipulator and a currency cheat on the very first day in office. In other words, he's not just bashing China for taking American jobs and deindustrializing Detroit and basically preventing clean water in California. Um, he's also, it's also linked very clearly to a specific, specific policy statement on this. Um, thirdly, Russia has figured in this election, which must be a great surprise to Mr. Putin. Um, but nonetheless, Russia has figured, if you remember going back to 2008, the deal was that uh, the new incoming Obama administration would reset the button, basically after the Georgian uh, crisis and tragedy, um, and an attempt to reset the button took place with no great outcomes, it seems to me, but on nuclear weapons and things like that. There has been some movement forward. Obama seems to have reassured the Russians quietly and off, off, off camera and at least off microphone, except the microphone was turned on, that he'd have to wait until he'd won the election until they could get back to some serious discussions, if you remember. Uh, Romney, again, is rhetorically much stronger on Russia. Indeed, has declared 
uh, that Russia will be one of, in fact, America's chief political foe, no less, into the 21st century. So there's the Middle East, there's China, there's Russia. Fourthly, there's allies. This is not a terribly interesting topic, except to people who do IR100 with me, and perhaps when I lecture them on IR100, it's no longer interesting. But allies are quite important for a world power. And you have seen in this discussion on foreign policy, the Republicans saying that Obama doesn't know what an ally looks like because all Obama keeps talking about are partners. So everybody becomes a partner in the brave new world of emerging economies and that he's got to get back, if you like, to the fundamentals of alliances, which basically means the transatlantic relationship needs to be resuscitated because Obama has lost the will, in a sense, to talk about democratic allies in the West. And Romney, of course, came here, of course, to resuscitate the Western alliance and the special relationship until asked the key question, how do you think the London Olympics will go? There afterwards, he lost all votes uh, from Watford north uh, to, to Durham and did a great deal to revive the fortunes of the British Olympic team. Um, but nonetheless, in a more serious vein, I think the Republicans have raised a key issue here about if we're living in a world of partnership, then how do you distinguish an ally from somebody else? And I think that is an important issue. Underlying all this, however, I think that we get back to the old realist conundrum of power very quickly on this, implicitly... Much of what Romney is saying is that Obama's policies are weakening America. America is declining, not just because it's declining. He doesn't believe that for one moment, of course. Any American president going into an election saying, hi, guys, vote for me, America's in decline, by the way, and I will manage that decline, isn't going to get very many votes. But the point he's making here that is Obama's policies are weakening America, leading from behind, not reinforcing allies. It's the oldest trick in the world, really. It basically, I think, what Romney's trying to do is to do a Jimmy Carter on Barack Obama. Point out that, with, as with Jimmy Carter, Carter weakened America. That was the great decade of neglect for American power and all of that. And, of course, it's promised, uh, extraordinarily so it seems to me, to revive and increase American military spending. This is, I say extraordinary, because American military spending actually went up by 62% in real terms between 2001 and 2011. And one might thought they've got enough aircraft carriers and enough F-111s to not want any more. But nonetheless, again, this issue of American power and that Obama has weakened it. Yeah. Okay, two questions. Are any of the charges uh, laid against President Obama objectively true? Answer, it doesn't matter. The key here is not truth, but perception. And here Romney might be scoring some points, at least on these issues. And many Americans are certainly fearful about the future um, of the world. And a majority, according to Pew and other polls that have been taken, now think China is a threat, not just a partner in the traditional sense that the Democrats have tried to present it. And many now believe, certainly if the the polls are to believe that the USA has now become number two. Now, the question is how much that will play into the election and what people decide when they go into the voting ballot or whatever they do. But nonetheless, it might play to some degree. Whether it has any impact, again, is, it remains to be seen. Does it really matter, then? This is the next question, my, my, my last question, and then I'll finish. Because the general line is, OK, Romney's tried to beat Safi, says he'd increase military spending until we got 
17 aircraft carriers or however many you need. We'll get another million men on the ground somewhere or other. Um, we'll give better pensions to generals around the world, especially if they're Americans. Um, you could say, well, okay, he's got to talk tough because he's got to put clear blue water between himself and the Democrats and presenting the Democrats being the party of weakness, the party that leads from behind as over Libya. Thing. The view is then as soon as he gets into power on day one, day two, day three, he'll become a good centrist, which in essence most people think that he really is. Um, but I would still say that words matter. Uh, advisors matter. And there's a lot of old fashion George W. Bush advisors around, around, around Romney, not all, but there's some. I think one's reading of the past matters, and the absence, and this is an important point, the absence of moderate Republicans matters as well, other voices. So Romney might not be George W. Bush Mark II, or Mark III, but there is a possibility that if and when a crisis happens, he will act more like Bush than anybody else, and this is why a number of old-school Republicans, if I might call them that, the few left, usually over the age of 75, I've noticed, this is why a number of Republicans of the old school have attacked him, from Henry Kissinger through to Colin Powell. So these, again, these great divides, uh, not only on domestic but also on foreign policy. Conclusion, foreign policy should not be ignored in thinking about presidentials. It can be, but I don't think it ought to be. Who wins will make a difference to the conduct of American foreign policy. Look what happened when Bush was elected back in 2000. Without Bush, in my opinion, no Iraq war. So individuals matter, particularly an individual like the President of the United States. And third and finally, the vote on the 6th of November is not just about who will run America, but who will run what still remains the only superpower left in the world. This is why this is just as much our election as America's. Fortunately or unfortunately, we don't have a vote. Thank you. Thanks. Well, it's a pleasure to join in this and a new experience for me to join it on this side of the Atlantic um, and with the experience of having already voted by this stage in the election, which is new for me as well. Um, let me confess to joining Bob Worcester as a regular reader of Nate Silver's and somebody who would suggest a great deal of confidence in the analysis of the election that he offers. So I have uh, generally agreed with this, and I want to highlight a couple of things about it. Silver's working from a, an analysis of a whole cluster of polls as much as he can find. That is, he's not simply giving you a poll's figure. He's trying to analyze the set of polls. And he's showing a remarkably consistent long-term pattern with relatively small blips, and I'd pay attention to that long-term pattern. Secondly, implicit in the name 538 and in what Bob Worcester said is something that needs to be underlined. Um, in addition to being about the economy, stupid, it's about the electoral college, stupid. And in terms of being confident in predicting the outcome of the race, it's a lot easier to be confident in the majority of the electoral college than the majority of the popular vote. And so a lot of the attention to swings in popular vote, it seems to me, is misplaced that there are a relatively small number of states where swings in the vote are going to matter. We need to remember the point that Bob Worcester made about the extent to which don't knows don't vote. 
Um, but we need also to look at the questions of the turnout and who's going to get out the vote at the last minute. But it would take a remarkable shift in the electoral map, Bob showed you, multiple electoral maps, to change things because of the way in which the Electoral College is organized. Um, landslide wins in an anti-Obama South and Sun Belt of the United States will not produce enough electoral votes to change things. The only big question mark in this region is Florida. Um, it's tilting towards Romney. This is true. Um, it's still in play. Um, but it's worth noting that even with Florida, this doesn't produce anything close to a majority of the electoral college, that the swing states that are tilting towards Obama in the industrial um, north and Midwest uh, carry more electoral votes considerably um, he does have to carry some of these swing states to win. He can't win simply on those that are solid blue in the map. He's going to have to carry some of the pale blue. But he has a vastly better chance of doing that than um, Romney does of carrying those states and holding on to Florida and so forth. So I think that's got to be seen as key to this, the sheer electoral mathematics. In this context, getting out the vote is a interestingly unpredictable and tricky question in this election. Not least, Hurricane Sandy is going to upset this still further, almost as we speak, and with somewhat unclear um, implications. Unclear not least because we don't know how much to believe weathermen. They are people in whom we have even less confidence than political pollsters. Bob. Um, but the, um, and in fact, the weather changes a great deal more. The point that I think that um, is implicit in why you should um, treat a group of polls that are analyzed by someone like Nate Silver differently from a single poll is that the stability of the pattern is enormous, where you have fluctuations in several individual polls um, with different polling biases. You don't in that um, to the same degree. But in any case, Hurricane Sandy's an issue. But the whole issue of getting out the vote is important. And a fair amount of the news here is going to be um, whether each candidate can get out the vote. And this is the way I would interpret some of the implications on each side here and say that they are not about changing people's attitudes at this point. It's not about how people who haven't made up their minds make up their minds. It's about who gets up in the morning and takes the trouble to go vote. So on the Romney side, there's going to be a significant issue getting a number of people who more or less agree with him in terms of a left-right spectrum to actually turn out and vote. The churches are not going to be as effective a support system for getting out the vote as they have been in some elections because of this issue of Mormon religion. Um, that is, getting out the vote is largely a matter of organizations that mobilize people to get out. They mobilize them by simply talking about it so that people think they ought to, but they drive people to the polls. They generate commitment. So whether it's trade unions or it's churches, it's organizations in many ways, and there's an organizational deficit in that sense on the right. But there's a deficit on the Obama side, too, which is the general sense of disappointment um, that is pervasive among many of the Obama supporters. And uh, um, it's not clear how well the vote will get out. I think it's clear that um, black churches will work strongly um, and other organizations in the black community. Um, it's clear that there are um, a number of so-called progressive cause or movement groups that will strongly. Labor support is actually very mixed um, for Obama this time around. We have things like the stand taken by his former chief of staff, now mayor of Chicago, against the teachers' union. We have a lot of uncertainty about some parts of that, even though this is seen as a defining vote by significant parts of labor. Um, there's going to be an issue getting out the vote. And in fact, 
um, the hurricane hits harder at places where Obama needs to get out the vote than it does at places where Romney needs to get out the vote. There are things that people worry about in all of this. Um, they worry not just about who wins. They worry about whether the election becomes further delegitimating for the Electoral College and the American electoral process. That is, they worry about a repeat with the opposite result of the first Bush election when um, the majority of the popular vote did not line up with the majority of the Electoral College. They worry that this could happen again, that Obama could lose the popular vote, win the Electoral College, and this could delegitimate not just him, but parts of the electoral system. They worry also about a hung electoral college, about the actual relatively remote, I think statistically unlikely, possibility that this doesn't get decided, that there actually has to be a further political process of deciding the outcome of the race. A few quick further thoughts, and I'll close on that. Um, one, this is vastly a race vastly more about Obama than about Romney. You might think it would be equally about both, but Romney is in certain ways a placeholder and an unremarkable placeholder on the right. A variety of people have very strong convictions on the right of the political spectrum. It's not that there's nobody on the right of the political spectrum. It's that they have different strong convictions. And Romney, for many of them, is a compromise result. And, uh, um, in, and in certain ways, he's demotivating to the right, the issue of being a Mormon, the issue of his uncertain convictions, and people who uh, this tension between some of his past more moderate Republican positions and his current positions. Um, it's a, a significant and interesting sign that his relative success in the first debate, that is both that he proved competent and that Obama was sleepwalking, mattered so much. It's a sign partly of how demotivated the Romney campaign, the supporters were, that in fact simply having that win could produce as much of a swing. The last. Obama, by contrast, is a motivator, but he's a motivator who cuts both ways. There's a positive side to this. It's motivating people to support Obama, though less than in 2008. There's a big negative set of motives. The distaste for Obama is also considerable. A large part of this, though it's very hard to know exactly how much, is race. But there is no question that, in my mind that there is more overt racism in this U.S. election than there has been in a long time, um, and that that figures more. Um, than has been the case, more even than in the first Obama election, when, among other things, the Obama campaign, with a tone of considerable optimism, satisfied a lot of people by giving them a chance to prove to themselves that they weren't racist by voting for Obama. Um, and, and that is uh, not working as well the second time, so the race issue is big. Um, and the debate swings turn on disappointment in Obama more than they turn on something positive that Romney has argued in this sense. Um, at the same time, anxieties and fears are big issues. Um, and a lot of the election, it seems to me, needs to be analyzed um, in these terms. This is not a social movement election to the extent that the 2008 style of the Obama election was in many ways a mobilizing campaign, getting new voters out, pulling people in a sort of movement-like um, path. This is largely attitudes and anxieties that are defining this, this election. It's, a, it's considerably more driven by what people don't like than by what people like in this case. Um, there are some big groups of anxieties. Um, there's a, a large issue of anxiety around race, um, as I've already mentioned, and more generally, um, a set of, of fear issues that um, work particularly 
Um, on one side, in terms of a fear of Obama, of, minor of minorities becoming a majority, of the undeserving poor getting too much of the goods of the country, of a general decline. Um, the talk of democratic allies is, I think, as much about this as it is about actual foreign policy issues. Why aren't we lined up with a bunch of white countries um, that in our foreign policy, which also happen to count as like us in other terms? Um, but there's fear on the other side, a fear of Romney and Ryan that centers on unpredictable change, on destabilization, the potential for hostile policies towards women, gays, and minorities. These are significant voting groups in the election. The gender gap is significant and real. Um, gay populations will turn out the vote and are organized to do it. Um, to, um, minorities will be uneven in their ability to get out the vote in all of this. But it's crucial to see that it is um, very much an election of competing disappointments, competing anxieties, competing fears, and relatively much less than in 2008, an election that was about an optimistic agenda for the future, about the aspirations of the people to what they thought they could express about themselves, to the very self-image we wanted to claim about ourselves in the election. That is figuring much less centrally this time. I'd like to come at this from a very different angle and to tell you what I've learned from talking directly with Obama's advisors and Romney's advisors. In my judgment, their perception has been that the most important feature of this election is going to be voter participation. Their sense is that wherever there was a swing vote, it has already swung and that actually the Obama team has been extremely nervous since well before the de first debate with Romney that they were losing, to the degree that the Obama team have actually been casting around for job interviews, which is always an important <laughs> sign. I have worked in the White House twice, and when the White House staff start looking around for jobs, this is telling you something about their confidence levels. Now, why is this the case? And what is it they see in terms of their relative advantage versus disadvantage? I think both sides agree that in spite of all the money that's been spent on advertising, they have not managed to change the opinion of a single American, which is an incredible phenomenon. The things that have changed the opinions of Americans have been very specific issues where it wasn't so much the... the advertising that changed their mind, it was the events that occurred. So, for example, the unions that normally would be there to support the Democrats in the way you've just described, literally showing up with carpools, cherry pies, because the fact is that people will come to vote if you feed them, right? Everybody knows this in politics. So unions are very good at carpools and cherry pies. Both the AFL-CIO and the Teamsters announced almost a year ago that they would be out of this race. They would not participate. That is not to say they would vote for the other side. That is just to say that they said, you know what, this president is just not doing enough for my people. With the condition of the economy, I'm just not getting enough out of this. So for the first time since 1971 with Nixon, the unions have stepped away from the candidate that they expected, that you would have expected them to back, as one example. 
As a second example, I think the Obama team is very concerned about African Americans simply not showing up in the kind of numbers that are required. Again, they're not going to vote for the other guy. The issue is they don't feel they got enough out of this president. And frankly, there's likely to be a good football game on that day. Right? And this is always an issue for the Democrats, to get the younger voters out. Statistically, you know, younger voters under the age of 35, they don't really participate that much anyway in American politics. It's one reason you need to bring out a lot of rock stars. You know, they don't go for the cherry pies, they go for the entertainment. And so this group sounds very unlikely, and it is showing in the polls clearly, that they are not going to get the same kind of turnout that they got in the past. The entrepreneurial class of America, I think, is a very important aspect of all this. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs in America, people running businesses. I include a very broad definition of entrepreneurs. This is not just people running small corner shop businesses. It's also people who have built very large corporations. This community might, in large part, normally want to vote Democrat. That's where their social convictions lie. But once President Obama basically came out and said, you didn't build your business and I'm going to hit you with a baseball bat called a tax hike, that community started to think about their self-interest. And their conclusion was, you know what? Romney, as a Republican, is not exactly a Tea Party movement kind of character. This is the most liberal Republican we're probably ever going to see as a presidential candidate. And you know what? I could live with that guy. And so you began to see a swing happen on that issue. The other issue, which I thought was interesting, not mentioned so much on the uh, foreign policy front, but I think has been the central issue for the Jewish vote in the United States, which is massively powerful in American politics, whether we like it or we don't like it. It's there. And the bottom line is that group voted 70% for Obama in the last race, and this time 70% will go to Romney, and that is very specifically on the Iranian nuclear issue and the perceived lack of support by President Obama for anything to happen on that front. Now, you could disagree with their positions or not, but that is what the Obama team have seen in terms of their usual core support base being eroded by events. On the other side, the Republicans have definitely not felt they are winning. So even though the Obama team have felt they were losing, the other side doesn't feel they are winning. And they haven't felt that they've had the support of the core of the party base, quite rightly, as was described before. I mean, I think it's hilarious, personally, having worked for George W., to think that Romney could be in any way compared with George W. Romney has been the poster child for the evil, bad, far too liberal Republican for many, many years. And so this means that the core support base on the Republican side don't view him as one of their own in any way. And so to get the level of support he's getting in spite of this is really rather impressive. I also think, by the way, it's very important to remember a couple of things. Now I'm going to make some arguments here that I'm going to cut across what's been said already. And it's always very difficult to argue, for example, with a man who has actually founded a highly successful polling company. But I'm going to do it because I have the benefit of an LSE education behind me. And so <laughs> I think there are two Americas. And this audience belongs to only one of them. 
There's a wonderful book by John Micklethwaite, the editor over at The Economist, on this subject. But the bottom line is you have to imagine in your mind's eye removing New England and removing California. Now, I happen to come from both places, so I can ask you to do this. They don't count except for one thing. That is where you go to raise money. That's why you notice the schedules of both candidates have them flying into those places in time for the cocktail party and getting out of there so they can be in the middle of the country for the next morning because that is where the real work begins. The middle is going to decide who the next president is. And the views of the middle of America are very different than the views of the coastline. Because we are here in Europe, we like to spend our time in L.A. and San Francisco and New York and Boston and Washington, all places I'm very comfortable with as well. But this is not the real America where the decision is going to be made. That is in the middle. Now, the middle is also deeply divided. And I think it would be a terrible tragedy if you came away from this conversation tonight thinking that this race is not close. This race is going to be the closest race that we have really seen in modern history. I think it is closer than the Carter-Reagan race. That has many implications. But when it comes down to it, there really isn't now a swing vote that is going to determine the outcome. The issue is who will show up on that day. And that is the central issue driving both campaigns. Now, let me address one other issue, which is philosophical. And I think it stands at the heart of this presidential race. And that is that the fundamental difference for most Americans between these two candidates is, broadly speaking, one stands for a country where the government will lead the way out of the economic mess that we are in. That government has the tools and will use policy in order to achieve the right outcome. If you are a beneficiary of the state in the United States, we know which candidate you're going to vote with. If you are, un if you are of the opposite camp and you believe the government is not the solution, that the private sector is the solution, you're going to go the other way. The United States is deeply divided between these two camps, but fundamentally our history is of a nation that doesn't actually believe in the government has the answer. And I think that's one reason we see the polls so very, very close. I do think the Obama camp has made a mistake in not highlighting the improvements in the economy. But the problem is nobody cares about profits. Everybody cares about jobs. Now, what we see in the U.S. today is something very fascinating, which is manufacturing moving back to the United States incredibly rapidly. And Obama hasn't mentioned a word about this because it's not using people. It's using algorithms and highly automated factories. So the bottom line is that's the dividing line, and that is the place where the decision will be made. So you can... Stand where you do, but you should know that you're leaning to one side because you're not with the group of people who actually have the vote. So thank you to all the panelists. Um, we have about half an hour left. I personally have enough questions to cover half an hour, but I am going to um, resist desperately to ask my questions and instead 
reach out to all of you. So I will try and catch eyes um, and put you on a list as I see them. I'm going to take a couple of, couple of questions. Um, I'm drawing myself little pictures here. I'm going to take a couple of questions at a time. And if you could address the questions to a particular, um, to a particular panelist, if it's focused on a particular panelist, or to the, um, the whole panel, I'd appreciate it. If you can introduce yourself, please, and tell us where you're from, uh, is the second thing I would like to ask you. And if you can wait for the mic to come to you before you um, ask your question, we would be grateful. I'm going to start with this gentleman in the red jumper on the uh, front row, and then go two rows back to the gentleman with the blue shirt over there. Uh, my name is David Harrington, and I'm a member of the public. Uh, this is a question to the panel in general. Uh, I don't know whether they heard Tom Wolfe bonfire of the vanities on Radio 4 this morning, but what he said was that American politics is like a train going on straight rails and it can't go very, very much left or right. And therefore, the election of the pre whichever president is somewhat irrelevant because the only thing he can do is wage war. Would they like to comment? And then this gentleman, third row back on the, in the blue shirt, checked or striped or some such. Uh, hello, good evening. Um, my name is uh, Dominic Fletcher, and I'm a member of the Ministry of Defence. Um, my question, please, is probably directed to all of the panel, but particularly to Professor Michael Cox. Um, I noticed that you, in your foreign policy and priorities, you didn't mention Afghanistan at all. And I know during the debates, again, it's uh, a subject which has been very mute. Uh, my question really is, um, why has there been no mention? Why is it not important to the American population? And I think uh, more importantly is, what do you see the trajectory of withdrawal depending upon which candidate um, wins the election? And there was one question over here, um, relatively near the front. I think there was a lady over here somewhere. No? Yes? Yes, front row. Hi, my name's Kate. I'm a postgraduate student here at LSE. I'm from Australia. My question uh, was regarding the perceived uh, women problem that the Republicans have. And in the event of uh, President Romney, what, would be the, what did the panel think the implications were going to be uh, for women in terms of rights, particularly in re uh, relation to reproductive rights? Three wildly varying questions. A very quick answer to Tom Wolfe. Uh, he forgot, to my view, the most important thing is that a President of the United States appoints the members of the Supreme Court. In the long term, that's the one thing that the President does do. It's overwhelmingly important because it establishes the direction of the country for decades, not just a few months or a few years. Yeah, never, never, <coughs> never listen to novelists uh, when it comes to my <laughs> And don't listen to my views on literature either, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think that's absurd, uh, be, be blunt, um, without being sitting on the fence. Uh, Ronald Reagan was elected and it made no difference. Duh. Um, George W. Bush's election or C-election, 2000-2001 by the Supreme Court in the end. Did it make a difference? Yes, it made a difference. Did Obama's election make a difference to thinking about the world and America's relationship to the world? I did think that Obama came up with a different philosophical way of thinking about its relationship to the world, which I think was very different at least to, to Bush 1, if not so much to Bush 
too. So I do think it makes a difference, and it's bound to make a difference. After all, this is a president who's the commander-in-chief of the largest military the world has ever known, which spends 45% of the world's military expenditure on national security, whose economy is the biggest, and whose dollar will remain, no doubt, the most central currency for the next 20 years in spite of the renminbi. Um, and I think it does make a difference. Yeah, I think it does make a huge difference. And to say it's irrelevant, I think, is, is just absurd, frankly. But that's, that's Tom Wolfe for you. He's a great writer. I love the bonfire of the vanities, but just shut up when it comes to talking. About <laughs> the, the question on Afghanistan is much more serious, much more, it's a much more serious question because it's about, it's about the fundamental issues of war and peace. Um, it has not been talked about a lot because nobody wants to talk about it because everybody thinks it's a mess. Uh, and nobody wants to talk about a mess. Um, and we don't know what's going to be left behind in Afghanistan except what looks like a mess. And a huge sacrifice has been made to create what looks to many people like a mess. Um, and it's a tragic mess, and it, it was done for the best of purposes. Let's be also, I'm pretty clear about that in my mind. I separate the war in Iraq uh, uh, from the war in Afghanistan. I, I make a very clear difference in my own mind about, about the nature of legitimacy and the rightness of the cause. But you're quite right, it has not been mentioned. And I think that tells us a lot about where the American people are in terms of their views about intervention. And I think it has huge consequences. And we saw it over Libya, to some degree, leading from behind. Um, it, it's making a huge difference over the debate about Syria. And it'll make any, all sorts of implications for any future potential for U.S. intervention. So, yes, I agree with you. It should have been discussed. It should have been debated. Most people have tried to keep away from it. Do you want to... Sure. Since there's been a lot of coverage of Tom Wolfe, I'll go light on that and say only that, that I agree with most of the criticism of him, but there is a real centrism to the two-party system um, that he's, in a very exaggerated way, taking note of. Um, and look how much there is a problem with the polarization and the gridlock in Congress and the difficulty getting things done. It matters when the American system can't come together around a political center to get things done in Congress. Mm. So that, in fact, having ideological politics on left and right is problematic in a sense. Um, I would add one quick point on Afghanistan that I think is basic, which is that the candidates don't differ enough to have a debate about it. And so it doesn't come up in the election because neither of them has a dramatically different solution in mind. So it won't make much difference in terms of withdrawal from Afghanistan. Therefore, they aren't going to spend time arguing about something that doesn't differentiate them. Reproductive rights, on the other hand, differentiates them dramatically. Um, I think that, uh, to be fair, on the uh, Republican side, the much attention has gone to people who are still wild extremists and not the mainstream, but the mainstream is um, still a problem for anyone who would argue for a woman's right to choose um, or would argue for the availability of contraceptives in a wider range of institutional settings or would argue for um, enlightened sex education programs. Um, and then the wild cards, that is the people who say that um, women's bodies have a capacity to um, automatically fight off the effects of rape or things like that, um, are a relatively small minority, but they are a minority taken seriously in significant um, parts of the power structure of the right. And I think that that's problematic. It changes where the mainstream and center is going to fall. Um, and so there is a real issue around reproductive rights. Before I, before I go on, I want to, just a quick follow-up to that. What we haven't spoken about terribly much 
so far is it's not just the president, but it's the Congress. Right. Mm. And what does the Congress look like? And I would argue that reproductive rights, and maybe you can touch upon this quickly, reproductive rights is one of those issues that's going to be decided in Congress as much as it is yeah, and, and in the House, uh, Republican control will mean that Obama is not able to move any particular agenda. Um, the odds are very good the Democrats will retain control of the Senate. Bob could speak in more detail about this. Um, but I think that the, the majority in the House is going to mean no movement. I think that it that will mean that existing provisions for um, – Choice and for certain kinds of policies, there are a range of more complicated issues about insurance and education, um, may be removed, but new policies probably won't get enacted by um, the current House. I think the key things are if President Obama is reelected, he will become president again without a mandate. And if it turns out that Romney has won the popular vote and he only wins the Electoral College, this is going to make it very difficult for him to lead and to govern. So I think this matters incredibly, and I can tell you the Obama team are very worried about how to govern when you begin from that place, especially when you're a president that everyone had such high expectations for. I think the second thing where we're going to see an interesting development is on the fiscal cliff. And the bottom line is that neither side, neither Romney nor Obama, is going to decisively address that issue unless they can hold hands with the other side as they do it. Both sides agree you cannot impose pain on the American public without holding hands with the other side and being able to allocate some of the blame to the other guy. So then this question of the House and the Senate becomes even more important and, you know, in Washington, there's an old saying that your worst enemies are always on your own team, which I can tell you is true from working in politics. And so for Obama, you notice during his first term, there were a lot of things he could not get done, get done because his own team would not support him. So ironically, it may become a little easier to get things done, even in the absence of a mandate, if he faces a Republican Congress. But either way, I don't see either candidate doing anything decisive about the fiscal issues. I was about to say excellent, but that isn't excellent. Um, the, the lady, <laughs> That's um, just a fact. long hair, yes, yes, absolutely perfect. Hi, my name's Alison. I'm a politics student down at Bournemouth. Um, I've got a question to the panel in general. In keeping with the three presidential debates and the vice presidential debate, there's been no mention of climate change. And I wonder what people think of the fact that Mitt Romney has an energy policy which is entirely based on drilling fossil fuels out of America, North American energy independence by 2020, with the complete absence on the Republican platform of any mention of climate change policy. Excellent. We're now going to go down here. There was, a, there was a gentleman somewhere in the middle here, I think, or a lady somewhere in the middle, unless your question has now been answered, in which case... Uh, there's, yes, this gentleman and then the blue shirt here. Thank you. Uh, Zebra Benovitz from the uh, Center for International Studies here at LSE. A question which uh, takes us a bit perhaps out of this, this campaign into uh, perhaps the, the future. It's the changing demographies of the United States. How would it change the foreign policy and also the, the voting uh, for, the, for, the, for the party? I mean, the Democrats since FDR had the uh, minorities co uh, coalition. Perhaps Obama broke that in 2008. Does he have it now? Will, will it be for the next uh, uh, campaigner for the, for the Democrats and so on and so on? So how, how does demographies change uh, both foreign policy and the uh, elections? Great, great question. And then this gentleman's second row, blue, blue shirt, please. 
I'm Adam Hammerhan. I'm a sixth form student from London. I just wondered what the panelists thought of what impact, if any, Hurricane Sandy would have on the election, and also just why, in general, there's a general decline in voter turnout in America. Paper, why do we start with you? Yeah. Um, so, on the climate change and energy, uh, fundamentally, I think Americans have found, as their incomes have been hurt by lack of jobs and lack of GDP, that climate change has become more and more a luxury issue for them, and they've been quick to give it up. Even the Democrats have had to lean towards a policy of energy independence, which the president does stand for, so that it's not strictly a Republican position. Um, and I do think that we're going to see a lot more investment just simply because of where the, the differential between the gas price versus the oil price over time. So that is inevitable, and we're going to see a lot of technical, technological innovation that will soothe the climate change camp relatively in the U.S. and is bound to make irate the climate change camp everywhere else in the world. So that's one thing. Let me just quickly say on Hurricane Sandy, it all comes down to the same issue, voter participation. And so on the East Coast, you have to look at the states where this matters. So Virginia is one of those locations. And I would argue Virginia is a place where the, that is traditionally a very hardcore Republican state. The only thing that has caused it to lean Democrat has been the largesse of the federal government being so great that every lawyer, every lobbyist has moved to northern Virginia to basically feed from the feeding trough, which is driving the regular Republicans who live in Virginia completely insane and referring to them as things like carpetbaggers. So the Republicans want to show up not because they believe in Romney, but because they're mad about these interlopers stealing their state. And if the storm is enough to shut the city down, my guess is the Republicans driving flatbed pickup trucks with guns in the back will drive through the rain, and the Democrats who've just moved to Northern Virginia will stay home. So on the Virginia case, the, uh, uh, I think the, the general point is right and the example partly wrong. I think growth has brought minorities. Um, in large numbers, it's brought uh, Northern Virginia, which is essentially a suburban layout, not composed entirely of federal bureaucrats or lobbyists. <laughs> um, and um, but the issue is the right issue to look at, which is the issue of turnout. As I said before, the impact of Hurricane Sandy, if it has an impact, is going to be mainly on turnout and very secondarily on how presidential President Obama does or doesn't look in handling it. But that will be some factor. If there were a major gaffe, that would be a problem. But absent that, the big news is turnout. Um, and the damage to be done is more seriously to be done to states that are swing states tending towards Obama rather than swing states tending towards Bush. So that's the worst the Romney. hurricane. That's our point. Romney. 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 Bush is gone. That's a meaningful gap. It's a meaningful gap. If President Obama does that kind of thing after the no. Um, right. But that's um, I, I think the turnout story. Yeah. I was gonna say that is indicative of how many people associate Romney with Bush. Which again is so funny. Yeah. Which yeah. given well, the gap well, between the two. Given the gap between so? them, but I think actually for you know, partially self defense, but for <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, for the, the reason that um, Romney doesn't 
excite a particular strong image. I think the same reason on both left and right, that is from people who don't particularly like him, which I probably reveal myself to be one, and, um, and people um, who will vote for him, this is not a candidate who has attracted the strong personal loyalty of a large commanding part of the people, who has a strong image in that sense, a candidate to which a variety of voters attach a variety of images, pro and con. Let me quickly respond on the, the other two, though, and change hands. On the climate change and energy, I think there's a little bit of the same thing I said about Afghanistan, though not as strong. Here, I think the opinions of the candidates may differ, but what they're likely able to do in policy um, what doesn't differ as much. And here, I think that Obama, in his first term, has done relatively little on climate change um, and energy issues, considering the gravity of the concerns. So there are people who are afraid of what <coughs> Romney might do, but there are relatively few of those people are enthusiasts for what Obama has done. And that mutes the issue. Um, on changing demography, it's very hard for politics to be really strategic for anyone, you know, someone like Kevin Phillips, when he's out of power, you know, his party can chart a long-term vision of a party or something like that. But that's very hard for actual politicians in the middle of elections to do. Um, I think the biggest changing demography story is the extent to which Republican Party has not yet managed to develop a strategy on Hispanics and on large parts of the Asian immigrant communities, which ought to be potential Republican voters on many counts, but are alienated by actual Republican rhetoric as much as any Republican policies. That the anti-immigrant rhetoric and, in general, the defense of a sort of American whiteness is um, a real problem for the Republicans in getting a potentially enduring um, majority of Hispanic and Asian votes. Uh, yeah, very quickly on climate change. I mean, the debate on climate change in the United States has, has just been different <laughs> uh, to the rest of the world, um, by which I don't just mean the European Union. Um, George W. Bush, who I do have to mention here, uh, is, not, is not Mitt Romney. They, they look different, and I'm well aware they are different in some, many, many <laughs> important ways. But I mean, there is, there's been a deeper resistance to even accepting the science of climate change in the United States. It is still there, and it has not gone away. And uh, whereas I think amongst most scientists in the world, including most American scientists, by the way, climate change is, is an accepted reality, and it is moving. And one of the great problems, and indeed one of the great tragedies of the debates in this election, and nobody wants to mention it, because it may not be a vote winner, and in a crisis, an economic crisis, it's jobs, 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 and many people believe incorrectly that climate change and talking about it may not win you votes, and indeed you might start saying that you'll lose your jobs. I'd also point out, for some figures I've got here, that the oil and gas industry supports the Republican Party to the degree of 87%, and if I was in the oil and gas industry, I would be supporting the Republican Party to the degree of 87% as well, um, because the Republicans simply don't take climate change seriously. Uh, and that is a fact, and that is a reality. And that's a shame, and I think shame on them. That's my view. <laughs> on the demography, I feel much better now. <laughs> yeah, thank yeah. You. I've been trying to be objective for the first part, but I'll be a little less so as we move towards 8 o'clock. On the demographics, I agree entirely what Craig has said. Uh, it's it, the Latino question, those of Hispanic origin, that has played very seriously against the Republicans, less seriously than one might have supposed, but it is a, it is a factor. From my purely horrible European kind of leftist liberal perspective, when I actually watch a Republican convention, it does look like a white person's party. 
Uh, now, I may be not seeing the right, and the cameras may not be going in on the right people, um, but, but, you know, it does look like that. And when I look at the Democratic Party convention, you know, it looks like a different kind of party. It just looks like and feels like a different kind of party, one which I feel, to be blunt, entirely much more comfortable with. Um, but you did mention one fact. Um, well, I'd mention one or two as well. Um, on, the Israel, on the Israel question, I mean, I, mean, I would be very interested and indeed rather surprised to think there's going to be such a swing away to the degree which you've suggested. The 70% swing of, of Jewish Americans who used to vote Democrat are now going to vote Republican. Uh, I, I just, we just have to wait and see. But again, that brings in this whole question of, of, of ethnicity, the different thing. I mean, anybody who lived in Ireland, as I did, knows the, the impact of, of you know, groups uh, on, 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 on policies. Uh, NATO enlargement in the 1990s, I thought somebody once said, was driven by the Polish-American community. Nothing to do with NATO enlargement, all to do with getting votes uh, from Polish-Americans. So clearly it's a central part of the American political process in general. On the, on the voter turnout, Bob's going to have to say much more about that than I did, but I actually thought the 2008 election voted, went up, voter registration went up. But Bob, you know many more things about this than I do. It doesn't, it doesn't look quite so bad as some, some of... But anyway, that's your area, not mine. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, can we go until breakfast? <laughs> Did you get this? Right. Have a look at it. Because many of the things we've just been discussing will become much clearer. Uh, let me start with uh, women. Uh, if you look at the demographic side, there are two sides to it. And by the way, this is for the numerate people. Uh, the other, uh, from the Journal of Public Affairs, is this in the middle with the words around it. So you can pick your own side of the brain that you'd like to work with. Uh, but if you take the, the gender question, abbreviated to sex, in the demographic side, and you look at women, uh, there was a five-point swing between uh, Bush-Kerry election and McCain-Obama election. Five-point swing. The fact is, however, that it was 3% Kerry lead and 13% Obama lead. Now, I don't think that's going to be as wide this time, but at least you've got a baseline here to look from. And there are some very surprising things in here. For instance, if you look at the swings, where, which demographic group can anybody spot? Because it's, nobody's talked about it, and this is going to be, I think, a, a very strong move and probably the biggest swing away from Obama because of their perception, and Epictetus said it so well, perceptions are truth because people believe them. And that's what politics is all about, what they believe, not what they know or think they know. But if you look down the right-hand column of Obama's swing, and the American pollsters, except for Andy Cohut at Pew, don't use swing, and he's picked it up from me, but it's been around in British uh, cephalogical evaluations for years and years, uh, basically introduced by David Butler at Nuffield College. But if you look down, what, what group is it that had the biggest swing? Sorry? Highest income group. Families with over $200,000 in the household 
had the biggest swing and the biggest change in turnout. They went from 3% of the electorate, voters that is, to 6%. They doubled and at the same time voted against their own best interests. And the written paper headline, you will notice, how America elected a black liberal intellectual. And the first paragraph said in American baseball, uh, three strikes and you're out. I can't think of any three more negative words in American politics than being black, being liberal, and being an intellectual. And he parlayed all three of them into the White House. Now, that group, I think, is going to change. And the turnout, if anything, will go down with that group as a proportion of the total. And they will be uh, less likely to support uh, Obama. And in terms of one of the three, the intellectual question, I think there will be a, uh, a, a, an acceptance that Romney's a very, very bright guy. And there wasn't a lot of that acceptance, particularly in this country, by the way, but that's a different issue. Uh, th and then there, were, there was in George W. Bush. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating, for me anyway, to look at this kind of stuff. Hispanics, for instance, we were talking about. And uh, the pundits, the beginning of the 2008 election, were saying pretty universally Hispanics don't vote for blacks. Absolute nonsense. They never looked at the numbers. If you find Hispanics in the third, third group there, Latinos, we called them then, uh, there was a 53-44, but it went to 67-33, or a swing of 13.5%. They were supporting a black. On the other side, what state is it? that had the biggest swing to Obama. I love it. I wish students would do this well <laughs> in our classes. Now why? Why? What? He was born there, but also it's a multiracial constituency, effectively. So there's really some, some very useful stuff, I think, that you will find. The other handout was the, the blue thing, which was my article when there was four weeks to go uh, in the American magazine, which I've been doing a monthly column uh, every month for this last year or so, as I did in 2008 and 2004. Gets very little resonance in this country, but the American expats uh, do tend to follow it. Uh, there were some other little bits and pieces that I wanted to bring up. And that's that the Jewish vote is going to be solid except in Florida. And the reason being is that the California, New Mexico, the West, the Southwest uh, Spanish vote is coming from Mexico, not Cuba. And if you look at the voting patterns in these two areas, you'll see that Romney will win the Jewish vote in Florida mainly because of that Cuban, because it was thought to be a marginal state. Now it's a giveaway for Romney, and they're going to turn out, and they're going to vote for Romney. And I think that's an interesting tidbit. Uh, the Afro-Americans' turnout is a real problem for Obama, and that's where they've got to really, really push hard. Trade unions was mentioned, and if you look at trade unions and their swing, if you turn back over, and you get down there to the trade unions, wherever they are on this union members, second from the bottom, uh, you'll find that the swing was 0.0. .0. And in that article, I believe I say, and I certainly did in many, many lectures and speeches, and uh, one thing and another, that uh, Obama didn't have a thing to, uh, to urge him after that letdown 
because Kerry did as well as Obama with trade union members in the United States. He was promising a hell of a lot to the trade unions, and they did not deliver. I'll stop there. We have. Oh, sorry. One other thing. Very <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I did want to bring, particularly to this audience, first-time voters, because there's this huge myth about first-time voters having really turned out for Obama, and there was this great wave, and I heard it on the radio just today, and the first-time voters, as you'll see, uh, yes, in terms of turnout, was 11 percent of the voters in 2004 and 11 percent in 2008. There was a big swing, 16 percent, but that's of the same proportion, and he was not getting the turnout among those people that everybody that I've ever talked to or listened to believes that they did. We have way too many questions and way too little time, so I'm going to impose a 20-second limit on, on your questions, and um, I, I'm, I'm never going to be able to get everybody's, um, and I have this lady here who's had a hand up for a long while, and then these two gentlemen coming on afterwards. Um, really, 20 seconds, and then I'm going to give a minute to each of our panelists to answer whichever one they want. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Cecilia Hesbeck. I'm a postgraduate student at UCL. Um, this is for all of you, I guess. Um, I kind of have the impression that there's a general feeling or sort of discourse in the American population that Obama has, hasn't really got anything done uh, in his four years. Um, do you think that it is the case that there is such a feeling um, and if yes, then how does this matter in the election? Thank you. Great. Thank you for being brief, this gentleman. Aren't the uh, right likely to turn out en masse simply because of the visceral loathing of Obama? And hasn't Mormonism to an extent been neutralized? And Billy Graham's re re removed any reference to Mormonism on his website as a cult uh, after a plea from Romney? Or do you actually think it is important that there isn't a Protestant on the Republican ticket? And the gentleman next to uh, My name is Magnus. I'm a Danish journalist. My question is uh, because in the last uh, debate, um, the two candidates were asked, uh, what will you do if and there was an if in that question that they didn't hear, if Afghanistan is still a mess in 2014. And they both answered by saying, Afghanistan won't be a mess in 2014. And of course, that's not an answer. And everything seems to show that it will be a mess. So my question is, and it's especially to those of you who seem to be talking to people in the campaign, what is, what is the answer they're not telling you? What, what will they do if Afghanistan or when Afghanistan is still a mess in 2014? Thank you very Thanks. much. If I can add to the panelists, choose your questions. Okay. Um, the view of the Democrats in Congress, of President Obama, Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, is basically he's a very nice young man, and we're very glad that you know, he's on our team, but he doesn't know anything about politics, and he should stay in the White House, and we will send him legislation, and he should sign it when we send it. And that, of course, is not the president's view. His view is, I am the president, and I should get to decide. So the bottom line, that perception that he has not been competent is central to this election. So I think that is an answer to your question. Secondly, I think the right will show up for Romney because the issues are not around social issues. It's around taxes and your purse and your personal economic future. And people are afraid of what Obama will mean in terms of that entrepreneurial class getting hit hard, as Sir Bob said. 
Sir Bob, I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was told off for that. Yeah. Um, I don't because it's Bob Geldorf, not me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, has Obama gotten much done? Yes, he's gotten a lot done. Is it being recognized? No, not for the most part. So the discourse is as described of relative action. That's partly because he's gotten lots done on a wide range of issues that are not the front and center issues for people worrying about in the campaign. But across a wide range of government offices, there is, in fact, um, a range of new policies, a range of new people working on them, and by and large, a great deal more competence, um, if we're going to use that. That said, though, I think the Obama team has emphasized competence too much, that it is an, essentially a technocratic leadership of um, Harvard graduates who are um, bringing a strong, competent um, performance. It's left of center instead of right of center or something, but the big deal is competence, and not the larger political action. Where Obama has fallen short is on the political effort required to get a coalition that would support very major changing um, legislation beyond the health care legislation, which feels too much like a compromise to overcome the sense of him not having gotten things done. Do you want to answer the Afghan question? Well, I just do one thing on what Obama's got done. The one thing he has got done, for which he's been severely criticized, of course, by the Republicans, is putting 30 more million Americans in, into health care. Um, and this seems to be highly controversial in the United States. I, I know why it's controversial in the United States, but I would have thought that's getting something done. Uh, I could talk about other things. There are certain things he hasn't done. I think on certain things he's been too timid. And in certain areas, he's been clearly constrained by the, the, the balance of politics in Washington. Um, okay. On loathing, uh, there is mutual loathing. Uh, mutually assured loathing um, <laughs> is a kind of phrase I've just made up. Um, <laughs> one of the things that strikes me about the states is that there is a high degree of loathing on both sides of each other. Um, even more so than this country, which sometimes surprises me. Um, where and how this began, who started it, who is to blame, I don't know. But the Republicans hated Clinton, and the Democrats then hated G.W. Bush. Um, and, and, and this now carries on, and this seems to me a central part of the American political discourse and part of its problem. On quickly, again on Afghanistan, very quickly, uh, nobody has a vested interest in doing anything else than getting out and declaring victory. Um, uh, and it is, it, it, is a great, it is a great tragedy because 9-11 was where much of the last 10... 9-11 has defined the last 10 years in so many ways and here we are at the end of that with huge investment of time and effort and we will leave the Afghan people and Afghan women, by the way, to get on with it and try their best to sort it out. Uh, what it's going to end in is another question. Sir Robert. Last, last word from me, two words is one, and going back to the issue of climate change, but it's a general response to a specific question, and that is salience. The word salience hasn't come up, but salience is all about turnout, or turnout's all about salience, and the position and who the swing voters will move to or from is all about salience. What's in it for them, what they think is important, and the things that are important are the ones that we did talk about, which is jobs and economy and to a certain slice, taxes and fairness. Uh, the second thing is, I mentioned about the turnout importance to the Democrats to get out the black vote. The turnout is the right wing vote, which I 
said in my summary on the slide, and that's that you've got a choice for right-wing born-again Christians, and I'm not making any, any disper uh, anything negative about that. They are self-identified born-again Christians, those 42%. Uh, the Tea Party was strong and was behind Sarah Palin, and they didn't have a leader, so they haven't played much of a role. But if you put those two things together, add to them where they live in, and they, how, how they reinforce each other, they've got a choice to make. They probably won't admit out loud except in closed rooms, maybe where the camera has happened to poor old Romney at one point with a 47% crack. But they've got a choice to make whether to support against their judgment a Mormon or on the other hand a black and it's a choice of bigotry between whether they're a bigot on the black side, racial, or a bigot on the religious side and I think a lot of them will stay home. Before we thank the panel, I have two things for you. The first, I have a question for you. Who here, hands up, who believes that uh, Romney and Obama will have very different foreign policies based on what you've read and heard tonight? 10%, maybe? 10.5? Um, and who here, hands up amongst you, and we asked this at the beginning, thinks that Obama would be better than Romney? Okay, now I've got to say, that doesn't make sense. You can't, on the one hand, think they have the same foreign policy, by and large, and think one's going to be much better for you all than the other. I leave you with that point. Um, I leave you also with... Um, I've been asked to remind you that on the 12th of November, LSE will be hosting a post-election discussion uh, with, amongst others, will feature Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Anne Applebaum and the FT's chief foreign affairs correspondent, Gideon Rachman. I highly recommend. They're both absolutely fantastic. The information is online. And with that, I'd just like to thank my panel and thank you all for coming.